Faculty design their classes based on their perceptions of how students learn. These perceptions, though, are not always consistent with the science of learning. In this episode, we examine the prevalence of neuromess and awareness of evidence-based practices in higher ed. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Dr. Kristen Betts and Dr. Michelle Miller. Kristen is a clinical professor in the online EDD program in educational leadership and management in the School of Education at Drexel University. Michelle is the director of the First Year Learning Initiative, professor of psychological sciences, and the president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. She's also the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and a frequent guest on this podcast. Welcome, Kristen. Welcome back, Michelle. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, it's great to be here again. We're really pleased to talk to you. Our teas today are... I'm drinking apricot oolong, a green tea. Nice for the afternoon. And I have a wonderful hibiscus tea. And I have, big surprise, English afternoon tea. And I have ginger peach black tea. We invited you here to talk about the study that you both worked on together on neuromess and evidence-based practices in higher education. Could you tell us what prompted the study? Sure. As a lifelong learner, I decided I would enroll in a wonderful program being offered at Johns Hopkins University several years ago in Mind, Brain, and Teaching, led by Dr. Mariel Hardiman. In one of the courses, I read several articles that looked at the high prevalence of neuromiss in K-12 education. And one of the things that caught me by surprise was, one, I was a K-12 teacher early in my career. I was at the time a professor in a school of education. And in looking at some of the neuromas, they actually looked like things that I had studied as part of professional development, and I had not assumed they would be neuromyths. And so it really intrigued me in terms of why is there this high prevalence? And why are we not more aware of some of the evidence-based practices that are out there? not just in the United States, but clearly these were studies that were taking place internationally. So I decided to start looking at this through the lens of higher education, because that's where I work, my area of expertise. And I reached out to Dr. Michelle Miller. I was at the Online Learning Consortium Conference. Her focus is on cognitive psychology. So I approached her after the session and told her about this interest in looking at neuromyths within the field of education, really across disciplines in trying to see, was it similar to what the findings were in K-12 through education and what was really being done to integrate evidence-based practices into pedagogy or even andragogy? So we decided to connect and start looking at this. I had a wonderful PhD student who I was working with at the time as well who is from Armenia, very interested in this topic. And we quickly grew our small group to include a total of 10 researchers from the total of seven different institutions, nationally and internationally across three countries. 
and everybody brought different expertise. Everyone from two-year colleges, four-year colleges, public, private. And we also were very fortunate because we were able to find really some of the seminal researchers in the area of mind-brain education science, such as Tracy Tokahama Spinoza. And we reached out to the researchers who actually conducted the studies looking at neuromyths like Sana Decker. And we reached out to Alita Anderson, who worked with McDonald et al. in their 2017 publication. So it quickly grew from a point of interest in trying to identify what was happening in higher education to really a much broader international study. Oh, and just echoing what Kristen has said here, we first did meet through the Online Learning Consortium, first at a conference, and then they set up calls where we got to talk to each other and realize that even though we came from somewhat different academic backgrounds and published in some different areas, we really had this common ground of interest in how do we bring more evidence-based teaching to faculty in higher education and really throughout the world? And to me as a cognitive psychologist, it's just an inherently fascinating question of, even though we live in our own minds, why do we not sometimes understand some basic principles of how the mind and how the brain works? So that's just an intellectually interesting question to me. But then it does take on this tremendous practical importance when we start to look at teaching practices throughout the world and bringing that really quality evidence-based design of teaching and learning experiences for our students. Can you talk a little bit about once all of these researchers are now together, how did you put the study together and how was it conducted? I have to say it was not easy. Thank goodness we reached out to some of the original authors, the survey instruments that looked at neuromyths and general knowledge about the brain. And what was so interesting is almost all the studies were truly K through 12 focused. So the questions were very different. Even looking at lexicon, girl and boy, where we would want to look at male, female. So we had to look at absolutely every question and make sure that we were able to revise that question within the framework for the lens of higher education. So it was not an easy process just in terms of time because we had to go through so many iterations and I think that really helps with the integrity of the research. We had two pilot studies, even down to looking at the Likert scales that we used. One of the things that really stood out was the primary study that we looked at, which was a 2012 study by Sana Decker and several other researchers. They had a Likert scale that looked at correct, incorrect, and I don't know. There was a study by McDonald and colleagues in 2017, and they changed it to true and false. So we decided early on we would go with true and false. And when we did that pilot, we ended up with half the participants stopping midway and simply putting, I'm not sure if it's true or false. And they just didn't complete the survey. And I think just looking at how we phrase the questions, it really affected the participation of our respondents. So we went back, we modified some of the questions based on that, and we changed the Likert scale. And I think being able to have the ability to say whether it was correct, incorrect, or you didn't know, took away from saying it was true or false, because you can base it on knowledge or what you perhaps had been exposed to. And we ended up having a wonderful pilot making some additional changes. And the feedback that we got, even after sending out the survey, we had a flood of emails saying, can you please send us a copy of the study? We're really interested. So we really looked at everything. And I would say one thing that stood out most, and again, I go back to the time, 
We spent over two years on this study from point of inception to where we actually sent out the survey, collected the study, and then published it was when we looked at the neuromyths, what we quickly realized was we needed to examine evidence-based practices as well. And we looked at all of this from a metacognitive perspective. The prior studies that were done looked at what they called endorsing neuromyths. And we weren't so much looking at endorsing, we wanted to look at awareness because all of us were involved in teaching, professional development. And so it was a matter of trying to identify what the gaps were. What were instructors, instructional designers, and professional development administrators aware of? And if there is that gap, how could we develop a study where people would say, wow, I also thought that was correct, but it's incorrect. But I would love to find out what the response is and how I can change my knowledge or understanding. And so we looked at absolutely everything and wanted to create a study that people would pick up and say, this is where I am now. Gosh, after going through this and reading the report, this is where I am in my circle of knowledge needs to continue to expand as things continue to expand through mind-brain education science. As a collaborative effort, I haven't been involved really in a study of this scale and scope. And it's simply the level of collaboration You just heard about one of the iterations of the survey instrument that we put together and just how that piece of the study came about. But all the way through the analyses, the writing, it was such an opportunity, even apart from what we were able to share with the rest of the world. Just for my little niche piece of the study as well, the opportunity as a cognitive psychologist to start infusing what I feel is more attention that needs to be paid to cognitive psychology and learning sciences. The opportunity to infuse that into this field and this area of thinking was also really exciting as well. So in terms of how it was conducted, we sent the survey out for the online learning consortium. When we originally started, we were just going to look at instructors. We were looking at neuromyth prevalence in instructors because all of the other studies that had been done were primarily K-12 teachers and pre-service teachers. Although the McDonald's study looked at a wider range, once we started to bring together our team, then we started thinking, gosh, well, it's not simply the instructors. It's going to be the instructional designers. It'll be anybody conducting some type of professional development as well, because no course is truly an island. There are so many people today involved in course design, course development. And so the Online Learning Consortium was such an amazing partner for us. And they touch on absolutely every part of that population. So we reached out to them early on and said, we'd love to collaborate with you. You've got an extensive membership in listserv would we be able to develop this survey instrument, send it out through your membership, and ask them through snowball sampling to share it with others who may actually be involved in higher education in one of these roles? And they could not have been a better partner. They're just incredible to work with. So that's how it was conducted. And we were actually part of that snowball. I sent it out to a list of about 1,200 faculty, staff, and professional development people on my campus alone. How large was your ultimate sample? We ended up with approximately 1,300 respondents. And then we actually looked at the full study. We ended up with 929 who met the criteria for inclusion. 
so one of the things we wanted to make sure when we looked at the criteria for inclusion, that they worked in higher education. You'd be surprised. So many people complete surveys, but they don't necessarily meet the criteria. Even when you explicitly state you have to be within higher education, teaching in one of these areas. So we had a total of 929 who met the criteria. And of those, they also had to complete 95% of the questions for the neuromyths and also for the evidence-based practices, because we didn't want to have any gaps. I would say it was an incredible response rate, especially for those completing the survey. They filled out, I would say, the majority of everything within the survey itself. The respondents were just incredible as well, because you talked about the cross-section of participants, but we ended up with really an incredible number of instructors, and that was broken down into full-time, part-time, instructional designers, professional development administrators, and it allowed us to run a lot of different tests that we'll talk about when we look at the findings. I think one of the things that's really interesting about how you discuss the setup of the study is thinking about how many different individuals play a role in perpetuating myths or even perpetuating good evidence-based practices too. That administrators is where funding comes from. So you have to have everybody in the institution on board with what you actually want to essentially institute. Well, what's interesting, and you bring up such a great point, one of the top neuromyths out there is learning styles. And so when you're looking at learning styles, this is something that almost seems to permeate. It doesn't matter when you started teaching, whether it's K through 12 or higher education. At some point, if you've been involved in education, you've come across learning styles. Now, there are learning preferences, and there's lots of wonderful research on that. But this concept of teaching to learning styles, I think, unfortunately, and we talk about this in section seven of our report, kind of got mixed in with multiple intelligences. And that is not at all what multiple intelligence was about, but it was almost the timing of it. And so having been a K through 12 teacher, I remember going through professional development where we learned about learning styles and how it was something to look at in terms of teaching learning preferences. And even to this day, when I do presentations, and I know Michelle has run into this as well, especially when we co-teach some of the OLC workshops, somebody will inevitably raise their hand or type in the chat area, are you kidding? Learning styles is a neuromyth? We just had somebody on our campus six months ago who taught us how to do an assessment to teach the learning styles. So it's still out there, even though there's so much in the literature saying it's a neuromyth, it's still prevalent within education across all areas. So you mentioned the issue of learning styles, and that's something we see a lot on our campus as well. We've even had a couple of podcast guests who we edited out their mention of learning styles and then had a chat with them later about it. I won't mention any names because they had some really good things to say, but it is a really prevalent myth and it's difficult to deal with. So you mentioned learning styles. What are the most prevalent myths that you found in terms of neuromyths? When you look at the report, the first part of our survey had 23 statements. We had eight statements that were neuromyths. If you look at the K through 12 studies, they had many more neuromyths, but we had eight. And I will tell you, the top five neuromyths in higher education very closely parallel what you find in K through 12. Now, our prevalence is not as high, 
but it still shows that instructors, instructional designers, and administrators are susceptible to them. And that goes back to awareness. So the top one, listening to classical music increases reasoning ability. And that's really that Mozart effect. Another one, individuals learn better when they receive information in their preferred learning styles. Some of us are left-brained and some of us are right-brained due to hemispheric dominance. And this helps explain differences in how we learn. So that's really that concept of, oh, I'm right-brained, I'm left-brained. And this, again, is something that goes across higher ed and K through 12. Two other really big ones, we only use 10% of our brain. And if you look at section seven of the report, you will find all of the responses, literally evidence-based practices or research-supported responses to make sure that people aren't simply saying, well, it's incorrect. Well, we want people to know why it's incorrect so they can reflect on that and change their understanding, really the rationale and the research behind it. And then lastly, it is best for children to learn their native language before a second language is learned. This again is a big neural myth. And I think one of the things I'm hoping that will come out of this study, because we talk about this really when we go into evidence-based practices, is this concept of neuroplasticity. The fact that the brain changes every time you learn something new. When you're engaged in an experience, the brain is changing. And sometimes the brain is changing at a cellular level before you might even see that change in behavior. And so we're able to see now through technology, through fMRI, through FNIR, so much more than we were able to see before. So really keeping abreast of what's happening in the research should be informing our practice because we have more information available than ever before, but somehow we need to get that into our professional development training seminars and workshops or into the classes that we're teaching in our schools of education or into our onboarding. But yeah, these are the top five neural myths in terms of susceptibility, and they cut across higher ed and K through 12. In your paper, you also provide some crosstabs on the prevalence by the type of role of individuals, whether they're instructors, instructional designers, or administrators. Could you tell us a little bit about how the different groups do in terms of the prevalence of these neuromyths? Well, the one thing I will say is everybody is susceptible to neuromyths. So it wasn't as if there was one group, and I know that's always in the back of someone's mind, gosh, who's the most susceptible? Well, we didn't find any significant differences. And one of the things that we wanted to do as well was to really break the participants down and look at other factors. So when we look at full-time versus part-time faculty, is one group more susceptible to neuromyths? And we found no significant difference in terms of gender, in terms of age, in terms of working at a two-year institution, a four-year institution. And I really think that talks to the amazing reality of the opportunity to integrate professional development in looking at the learning sciences and mind-brain education science in the opportunity to decrease that gap. So it wasn't one group over another, but it's everybody who has this opportunity to increase this awareness across all of these areas. Didn't you also find that some of these myths were less common among instructional designers relative to faculty? We found with evidence-based practices, when we looked at significant difference with evidence-based practices, instructional designers actually had 
in terms of percent correct, higher awareness of evidence-based practices. It wasn't a large difference, but there was a significant difference. And Michelle can certainly talk to this point as well, but this is really the importance of having an incredible team when you're looking at course design, course development. And part of that may have to do with when you look at instructional design, there is so much new literature and research that's getting infused into that area. And so that may have something to do with it. But I think there's lots of additional studies that we could do to follow up. Kind of circling back to that point of the design and delivery of instruction in a contemporary university or college is fundamentally more collaborative than it was in prior eras. And so I think we definitely need to have everybody involved start to really break out of that old school mold of class is identified with the teacher who teaches it and that's what a course is. And and no, courses reflect today everything from the philosophy and the support that comes down from the top to the people that the students may never meet, but who put their stamp on instruction, such as instructional designers. And this is something that I get pretty fired up about in my just practical work as a program director and just being involved in these things in the university that there are still faculty who you say, hey, do we have any instructional designers who are working with us on this project to redesign? Is anybody assigned to help us as we develop this new online degree program or something? And you sometimes still get blank looks or you get, oh, aren't those the people who you call when the learning management system breaks down and that's their specialty? I mean, this report, I think, just really hammers home that idea that instructional designers are a key part of this collaborative team that goes into really good quality higher education instruction today. And it isn't just about the technology. I think that they're getting exposure to and staying abreast of what's going on in research that relates to teaching and learning. And what a great opportunity for faculty to not just rely on them for technology, but to learn from them and to learn with them as we build better courses together. Can you talk a little bit about the awareness that you found in general about evidence-based practices? So we focused a lot on the neuromyths, but what shook out when you started looking at the evidence-based practices? Well, one thing that stood out was awareness was much higher. And that's really exciting. I think that's a huge testament to the professional development that we are offering. But there were still gaps in areas where there certainly could be a lot of improvement. So a couple of examples that I'll give, because we literally spent months looking up evidence-based practices and we wanted to make sure that we could support them. So for example, when we look at percent correct, where most individuals across all three groups were not as aware, like differentiated instruction is individualized instruction. So we know that this is incorrect, but most of the respondents did not put that that was an incorrect statement. So they either stated it was correct or they didn't know. So again, this is an area that we certainly want to explore because differentiated instruction is something that really, I think, adds to the classroom. And there are other ones. For example, we'll look at universal design for learning. So one of the statements we had in there actually comes directly from the CAS website. And it says, universal design for learning is a framework to improve and optimize teaching and learning for all people based on scientific insights into how humans learn. 
Well, the instructional designers, they were the most aware. So 87% of them got that correct. Of the professional development administrators, 74% got that answer correct. For the instructors, 58% got that correct. So you can see the difference in the responses. And when we share this nationally or internationally, when we talk about the study, you'll have a lot of individuals who'll say, no, universal design for learning, that's about accessibility. Well, it certainly is about accessibility, but most importantly, it's about learning and how humans learn. It is probably the most dynamic and the most powerful aspect that we can add into pedagogy or into andragogy. But just by looking at the data here, it may not be something that everybody's aware of. And that's, again, a great opportunity to integrate that into professional development. So there are a number of things. I mean, it's exciting because when you look at it, there are 28 statements. And as I mentioned, overall, the awareness was much higher across all three groups compared to neuromyths or general knowledge about the brain. Just to jump in here, again, from my kind of cognitive psychology perspective, those evidence-based practices that we're talking about also include specifically some items that are related to memory, a topic that's really close to my heart. So I think those are just fascinating as well. So for example, we asked a, a variation on a classic question that many cognitive psychologists have looked at, whether human memory works a lot like a digital recording device or a video camera. So is your memory basically taking in information that's in front of you? And here again, we've got 69% of our instructors saying, oh yeah, that's right. That's how it works. And that is not how it works. 79% of our instructional designers identified this as an incorrect statement, and 74% of our administrators. And we have a few other related things, such as we ask people whether testing detracts from learning. And as key for teaching listeners know, that goes to retrieval practice. Testing doesn't detract from learning. Testing builds up learning. So these are some as well that I think it's very interesting to tap into what people know and really to think about while these maybe seem like inside baseball or, or very metaphorical or philosophical questions, if I'm an instructor and I believe these things, that students are basically just running video cameras in their heads, well, that is going to lead to some different practices. I might be very puzzled as to why I got up and gave this lecture and the students' eyes were pointed at me and yet it didn't end up in memory. So those are some of the items that I was particularly interested to see when we got all the numbers in. You know, I would say one thing, when anybody reads a report, what we want them to do is look at how it's presented in terms of the tables, because everything is looking at the percent of correct or accurate responses. So as Michelle said, when we look at human memory works like a digital recording device, 69% of the instructors got that correct. 79% of the instructional designers got that correct. And 74% of the administrators got that correct. So that means we still have a fairly large percentage basically 20 to 30% that either got the answer incorrect or they didn't know. And even looking at these responses, did they actually know why they knew it? Or did they guess? Or did they make that assumption like, oh, that's got to be right. And so really, the intentionality of this study was awareness, really bringing out statements from the literature to help anybody who's involved in teaching, course design, professional development, to look at these questions and really think, 
do I know this? And if I know it, how do I know this? Is it based on some type of research or literature? Could I defend that? And if I don't know with certainty, where would I find that answer? And how could I learn that? And how could I integrate those practices? On the day when your report came out, we shared that on our campus to everyone on our mailing list. One of the nice things about the report is that it has all the questions and also provides references for the answers explaining why the specific answer is true or false. And it's a really great resource. And we'll share a link to that in the show notes. It is long. When I shared it, two people sent back emails saying, maybe we should use this as a reading group for next semester. And it's not a bad idea, actually. But much of that is appendices and so forth. And it's a really informative document. I believe in your survey, you were asking people about their participation in professional development, and you looked at the relationship between participation in professional development and the prevalence of these myths. Is that correct? We did. So one of the things that we wanted to look at was trying to find out if educators were involved in professional development, whether it be neuroscience, psychology, or mind-brain education science. Did that actually increase their awareness of neuromyths, general information about the brain in evidence-based practices? And it did. We found that it was definitely a predictor and it was found to be a significant predictor. And so for us, again, it looked at what a wonderful opportunity to be able to say that training does have a positive impact. And that was really the crux of the study. And what's interesting, you talked about the length of the study, because originally we had thought about doing two different or three different studies. So we do one on neuromyths, one on evidence-based practices, one on professional development. Then when we brought the data in, the question was, gosh, do we separate them out into three different long articles or three different reports? And we collectively across all disciplines said, No, we need to bring them together because first and foremost, it's about awareness. You can't really talk about evidence-based practices until you're aware of what the neurobis might be. What are some of the fallacies that you might actually believe? What are things about the brain that you may or may not know? And once you're there and you have that understanding, you can then move into the evidence-based practices because it's all really connected. So when Michelle talks about memory, you can't really talk about memory without having some understanding of the mind or the brain. And so we decided collectively we would bring it together as hopefully a seminal piece that would really present anyone with a continuum as to where am I, what am I possibly doing in my classroom, being able to really do that self-assessment and then find the answers, as you said, in that section seven and realize that they're not an outlier. I mean, chances are anybody that goes through this is going to fall within that span in terms of their understanding and knowledge. What I hope is coming out here is that this study is unusual, not just in its scale, its scope, and that we focused on higher education, but that it is so explicitly geared to not just identifying gaps in knowledge or awareness, but addressing those. It's not like we came along six months later and said, oh, by the way, here's a really nice resource we put together. It is one stop. It's right there. And what an exercise that was as well, Kristen. I think you'll remember back just saying, okay, in a paragraph, this item, all of us look at this and go, oh my gosh, that's wrong or that's right. Why is that? And what are the very best empirical sources that we will trace back to 
to demonstrate that. So we are trying to provide that and also to really be a model to say next time that you get that handout or that workshop that says, oh, here's some great stuff about the brain. What are they backing that up with? Can you trace it back to the solid research sources that make some of these really powerful principles for learning and make other things just misconceptions? One of the things that I would say was probably the most exciting and the most challenging, we had 10 researchers. We had 10 researchers from different fields, people from nursing, biomedical engineering, psychology. We had people who were in the area of neuroscience, education, as I mentioned. And we needed to come out with a collective voice, writing a report that would be understood across disciplines. And so when we wrote section seven, all of us had to be reviewers and we vetted it multiple times, not just within our group, but outside to make sure when you read about neuropathways, it actually made sense because to write something where somebody would not understand or not be able to connect would be a challenge. And we wanted people to walk away. I know one of the things that we were looking at, why neuromyths? Well, a lot of the research out there looks at the fact that when you teach, your teaching and your pedagogy is based on your knowledge and, and your understanding of how people learn. And so we wanted to really look at this area in terms of awareness because it may impact pedagogy. Our study did not do that. And I want to make sure it's really clear. Our study was not designed to say, oh gosh, the awareness of neuromyths wasn't very high in this area. Therefore, you must be integrating neuromyths into your teaching. That was not the intentionality of our study. And that's not something that we've ever said. There's certainly recommendations we put in the study to look at if there is a high prevalence of neuromyths, how does that affect pedagogy? But ours was simply looking at awareness and could professional development address gaps so we could do this across all different groups that would be involved in course design and delivery. That's one of the things I really like about it, that you do address all these things well, you provide the evidence, and it's going to be a great go-to reference for those of us when faced with neuromyths or with issues about evidence-based practices. We can just go and grab some of the citations and share them back out or refer them to the whole document, as I've done several times already. These things are really common, even in professional development. I was at a session not too long ago where there were two neuromyths presented during the session. One was the learning styles thing. But the nice thing is, unlike other times when I've seen that done, there were two of us who went up and waited until everyone else talked to the presenter. And we were both ready to do it after other people had gone, so we didn't embarrass her. But it's starting to get out there. And I know on our campus, we've got a growing number of people who are aware of this, partly because of the reading groups we've had, where we've had a growing number of participants. And that all started, actually, with Michelle's book about five years ago now. When we first did the group, you came out, you visited, people wanted to do more, so we started a reading group. We've done four additional reading groups since then. And we've had many of the same participants, but it's spreading out wider. I'm hoping we're making a difference through these reading groups. And that's so gratifying as an author and as a researcher. And I remember well working with your group in Oswego and the great ideas that I took away as well. So I'm a big believer in virtuous cycles. So maybe we've started one. I think what really came out of this study is the passion that everybody has for student success. Everybody from those that are offering the professional development 
the instructional designers that want to make sure that the students are successful, even though they might not be teaching the course, and then the instructors themselves. And so to be able to work with that many individuals who are not only subject matter experts across their disciplines, but so passionate about making a difference that I think being able to integrate all of this new research relating to neuroscience, psychology, and education, it's going to transform not only how we teach, but it's going to transform pedagogy, andragogy, and this whole concept of learning. I really appreciate the bringing it together and that you decided to keep it all together and not to make three separate reports. I think it's actually really important to understand how these are all connected and related. And I think that's one of the most unique things about the report. I think the community is probably very grateful that we have this resource available now. Oh, thank you. One of the things I've often been concerned about is how some of these neuromyths, particularly the left brain, right brain thing and the learning styles belief often serves as a message to students that they can only learn in certain ways or they only have certain types of skills and they're not able to make progress in other ways. And it can serve as a barrier and can lead perhaps to the development of a fixed mindset in students, which may serve as a barrier. Or not even allow those students to feel like they can enter particular disciplines. If people become more aware of this, perhaps it could lead to more opportunities for our students or fewer barriers placed in the way of students. Or maybe even just more inclusive pedagogy in general. You bring up such a great point. So if you believe in learning styles and you believe that you are truly a visual learner, Michelle and I've talked about this a lot, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, you probably are an incredible visual learner because you've been told you learn better in this learning style. So you're going to seek materials in that learning style. So the challenge with that, especially when you're looking at younger students or anybody during their education, you're precluding really other ways to enhance your learning. So when you look at universal design for learning, it's so important because you're looking at multiple means of engagement, representation, action, and expression. And when you're looking at learning styles, if a student believes they're a visual learner and suddenly has to go in and take a Spanish oral exam, it could trigger all of a sudden stress. Well, what do we know about stress? And Michelle can talk more about that. But when you're stressed, it affects working memory. And so just that thought of, oh my gosh, it's an oral exam. I'm a visual learner. How can I perform well on that? And it's really creating, as you talked about, a barrier, or it, it may decrease possibly performance. I know that Dr. Tracy Tokahama Espinosa is very passionate about this, and you'll see in her presentations, she'll come out and say, neuromyths do harm. And so I think it's certainly something that needs to be explored. And Michelle, from a psychological point, I'd be curious to find out what you have to say as well. When you say self-fulfilling prophecy and things like that, it also kind of reminds me of a placebo effect in a way. And learning styles, or continuing that as an example, yes, I might say, oh, visual learning it is absolutely me. I've, now I feel like I can tailor all this to myself. I'll just find teachers, opportunities, and disciplines that are right there in, in visual learning. And I might have some subjective impression that that's helping me. Or from the teacher's perspective, I might feel like, well, I brought in some different materials that engage different modalities. And what do you know? Because of learning styles, we're doing better. Well, there's lots of different reasons why that might be happening. 
an individual may walk away and maybe they weren't individually harmed. I just feel like, just like in modern medicine, there's sort of a promise that we can do better than mere placebos. I think that ought to be the promise of modern pedagogy as well, that we can do better than simply trying to build up expectations or giving people a false sense that they have something based on science that's going to help them individually do better. And I hear so many kind of missed opportunities that really kind of get me activated as well. I think about, for example, the energy that goes into faculty professional development. These things come from good impulses. I really believe that. I believe that people who really pursue something like learning styles or things like that, they want to do better and they want to be more inclusive. But that effort is directed down the wrong path simply because of this gap in knowledge and gap in information and getting the right information to the right people at the right time. And I can't stand the thought of faculty, especially as limited as faculty time is and as spread as thin as faculty are, to think that they might try to pick up on some better information about teaching and learning and go down the wrong path. I never want that to happen again. And maybe our report will be a step in the right direction. I'll say one thing that we're trying to do with the report is really to align the report with best practices and evidence-based practices. So when you look at the concept of neuromyths, the wonderful study that was written by McDonald, and this was in 2017 and her colleagues, the title is Dispelling the Myth, Training in Education and Neuroscience Decreases but Does Not Eliminate Beliefs in Neuromyths. And so Professional development is not a silver bullet. Simply offering one workshop that's going to address neuromyths is not going to necessarily get rid of neuromyths. So we have to do what? We have to look at spacing. We have to look at interleaving. So with professional development, how do you take information related to evidence-based practices and integrate spaced practice into our own professional development? How do we integrate interleaving? How do we integrate low stakes assessment? So maybe when faculty or instructional designers come in, you do a quick self-assessment and find out what that baseline knowledge is. And then at the end to say, okay, at the end of professional development, we need to get to 95% or higher, but they're able to actually test their own knowledge. So we need to kind of turn professional development upside down and make it active learning and really engage everybody in what we're looking at within pedagogy and andragogy. Yeah, I always find it really ironic that a lot of training and things on evidence-based practices is not using evidence-based practices <laughs> or using really traditional formats, lecture or getting lectured at and not really engaging with the material. And it's so different when we're working with our students and if they're practicing in a way that's not going to be effective for them, then they're not successful. They could spend tons of time on something and just not really make progress. The same thing can happen with our faculty and staff who are designing curricula and what have you as well. They can be really invested. Absolutely. We do have an excellent podcast on retrieval practice. In fact, it's one of our most popular episodes. We'll share a link to that in our show notes. We don't yet have any podcasts on interleaved and space practice. But I'm sure we'll be asking Michelle to come back and talk about these things at some point in the future, if she's willing. So far, we've been focusing on the types of neuromyths that are common. What can we do to reduce the prevalence of these neuromyths? Professional development is certainly key, but I would look at things such as onboarding. 
making sure that when people are getting hired on, that they're really introduced to evidence-based practices from the very beginning. And even individuals that would say, gosh, I've been in instructional design for 20 years. I'm familiar. There may still be those gaps. And it's almost like adaptive learning. Everybody that comes in, very much like Vygotsky's work of zone of proximal development, there may have all been teaching for 20 years, but it doesn't mean that we don't have neurodiversity in terms of experience, knowledge about different practices. So it's important that it's from the very onset of when people get hired and making sure it's understood that we're committed to best practices, evidence-based practices, and what we do builds upon the literature and the research. Not only do we introduce it here, but we move it forward and integrate it into our pedagogy and what we're doing in our classrooms. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? Conference season is upon us. We're recording this fall of 2019. I'm gearing up to go to the Online Learning Consortium's Accelerate Conference in November. And so I will just personally say, come find me if you're there and you want to talk more about this. I will be presenting on a related but different topic having to do with our ongoing Attention Matters project, which is also the subject of another Tea for Teaching episode. So I'm really working on getting ready for that and also the upcoming Pod Network Conference. So for those educational developers who will be attending that, I'll be speaking there and hopefully having lots and lots of sidebar conversations with plenty of other people who are interested and fired up about these very topics. So I'm working on those. I'm working on what I will now call a forthcoming book. It's under contract with West Virginia University Press tentatively titled Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology. So maybe someday in the not too far off future, we'll be talking about that project as well. We should note that this podcast will be released during the OLC conference. In particular, it's coming out on Wednesday of the conference. Oh, that's exciting. And I should also note that we'll be presenting there as well. I'm hoping we'll get some people to listen to this podcast because we're presenting the next day. So we (laughs) might get some new listeners. Oh, that's exciting. In terms of projects that I'm engaged in and working on, we have just launched a new lab in our School of Education at Drexel University. So we're bringing everything together and trying to align projects coming up for 2020. But it's a lab called eLabs, Education, Learning, and Brain Sciences Research Collaborative. So we'll be looking at different studies related to the learning sciences and mind-brain education science. I am wrapping up an article with several researchers at Drexel University, some of our PhD students, that looks at immersive virtual reality and practice as well as transfer of learning. We also have a report that I'm working on. It's an update to research that I conducted earlier on online human touch. So I'm wrapping up that study and putting together an article there. And then also looking at two publications for books looking at neuroplasticity and optimal learning. One would be for students to really understand neurodiversity, neuroplasticity, how you can optimize the stress response, and then looking at neuroplasticity and optimal learning from the instructor or instructional design perspective. How do you integrate this into your practice? So those are the initiatives that I'm working on. Sounds like lots of things for all of us to look forward to. 
Thank you very much for joining us. This was a fascinating conversation, and we've been looking forward to this report since I first heard a bit about it when you initially did the survey and when I saw a preliminary presentation at OLC last year. Well, thank you so much for having us. It's such a pleasure to discuss this topic with you, and I'm looking forward to listening to many of your upcoming podcasts that clearly is connected to this report. Thank you so much. It makes all the hard work worthwhile, and we just love the opportunity to get the work out to exactly the people with the power to spread it to faculty and instructional designers and leaders in universities today. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.